0: Hey everyone, welcome back to season three of Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor Essa Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, our handle is at EudaimoniaPod. In this episode, titled St. Augustine and the Index of Self-Destructive Acts, I speak with philosopher Jamie Smith of Calvin College about the surprising connections between St. Augustine and the Existentialists, and certain perennial Augustinian themes in Christopher Beja's latest novel. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I'm really excited to have James Smith with me on the podcast this afternoon. James is Professor of Philosophy at Calvin University, where he holds the Gary and Henrietta Biker Chair in Applied Reformed Theology and Worldview. He has written many wonderful books, the most recent of which is On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. Welcome to the podcast,
1: Jamie. It's great to talk to you. Thanks so much.
0: I'm super excited to have you on. And of course, I'm excited to talk about St. Augustine. Oh, and we're also going to talk about Christopher Beja's novel, The Index of Self-Destructive Acts. And I'm really excited to talk about that. But before that, I want to talk about you and me. Mm-hmm. So yeah. <laughs> we we were we were just figuring <laughs> out how we met and we decided this is another Twitter connection. Yeah. But you and I are doing a project together and I just thought maybe we could start off by talking about what we're yeah, up to.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited that you're part of it. Um so the Templeton Religion Trust uh has a big uh grant project going on called Art Seeking Understanding. And uh, we are involved in a team of people who are talking about the art of understanding and the heresy of paraphrase. So it's gonna be a blast because basically, people make a lot of claims about what art can do. Uh, and they make a lot of claims about how the arts advance knowledge. There's actually sort of a theory of this called uh, aesthetic cognitivism that, that shapes our conversation, which is fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really sympathetic to the project. The the challenge is um, whether you can actually substantiate the claims that art does all of these marvelous things that we claim for it. And so right. what what our team is going to do, and it's an amazing group, right? I mean, it's such a fantastic group of people where we have a poet, a painter, a pianist. That's like the beginning of a joke. Um, uh, <laughs> You know, philosophers, theologians, uh, a psychologist, uh, who's going to be our social scientific conscience as we're working through all of these things. And, um, yeah, thinking together from our expertise, uh, how, how are you feeling about it? What are you, what's, uh, what are your intuitions about what's going to happen? here?
0: I'm so excited. I mean, I'm teaching Iris Murdoch right now on, on, the claim that art is cognition in another mode. It's so fun to talk about with students. So I think it is an incredibly important question. And of course, as someone who's done Templeton work before, I think these interdisciplinary projects are incredibly valuable intellectually, but also really fun. As much as I love philosophy and I love philosophers, yeah. we're, we're definitely weirdos with certain dispositions and a certain perspective. And it's just really nice and intellectually liberating to talk to people who aren't philosophers and to see you know how they react to your work i mean i've benefited so much from that kind of engagement so i'm excited i'm also a little bit nervous because um up till now you know my work hasn't specifically been on this topic
1: i so wanted you to be on the team because I, I i think some of the best work happens when kind of chemical reactions take place and and i think clear and the podcast is such a great model of you're you're clearly immersed in literature so i just wanted this to be an invitation for you to now take your philosophical expertise and and sort of uh extrapolate it into new areas so this is just giving you excuse to sort of carve out a new area of specialization
0: Fantastic. Hopefully this will be like my flourishing midlife crisis. I'll just jump off the deep end.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I, I do think it's exciting too that Templeton is um, more systematically turning to the aesthetic uh, which yeah. has always been kind of ruled out for them, and I think there's a new opening because part of what we're also talking about—this is my interest, I'm sure it's part of your interest too—is the the way in which the kind of knowing that happens, say, in literature, poetry, film, um, is a kind of knowing that might be more amenable to the transcendence of of uh, um, religious understanding and mystery in a way, and so not irrelevant actually to Bayhouse's book, but uh, so I'm I'm really intrigued to see how the conversation goes. And like you, my best, I think the highlights of my intellectual career have almost always been inter- interdisciplinary experiences where you get to learn um, from a new angle. So I think it should be great fun.
0: And one of the things that is interesting about the progr- about the project, and it's actually a sort of a segue into your book, On the Road with mm. St. Augustine, is that So there are three philosophers that I think that are on the project. There's me, and then there's another member of my tribe, namely analytic philosophers. And then there's you. And your background in philosophy is more in the, I guess we would say, continental phenomenological tradition, although I think the continental Mm -hmm. analytic divide is really overplayed. And part of what you talk about in your book is how you came as someone interested in philosophy, uh, somewhat surprisingly, to get into St. Augustine. So I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about your intellectual background and how you got into St. Augustine.
1: Yeah, or definitely came back to St. Augustine. I would say my early encounters, when I was in undergrad, I thought I was going into the ministry. So I was, you know, studying theology. But um, the Augustine I met first time around was kind of this stodgy, fusty, scholastic, which is of not Augustine at all. And, it's, and it was just a weird, yeah. So he didn't really capture me at all. But when I went to Villanova to do my PhD on the young Heidegger, early phenomenologist, um, uh-huh. at that time, uh, they had just published his sort of early lectures from before he became the, the breakout that he was. And uh, it turned out that he had been really shaped by Augustine. Uh, and, and, and the encounter with Augustine's confessions in particular. And at the same time, right around, I think it was, yeah, it was definitely while I was still in grad school, Hannah Arendt's dissertation on love and St. Augustine, uh, was published. And so both of these sort of broke open Augustine for me in a new way, um, which then also kind of reconfigured my theological and and Christian interests in Augustine. So yeah, I'm I'm it kind of took early phenomenologists and existentialists to give me back Augustine in a way that also became spiritually significant.
0: Well, I'm I'm sort of curious what Augustine you were reading as, as a young man, because, like, you said no. he seemed scholastic, and I don't get that. Yes. Surely you weren't reading the Confessions. No, we
1: weren't reading the okay. Confessions. So we were, you know, we would be reading treatises on, and we're trying to, like, it'd be the Augustine who gives you passe non picare, you know, like, it, it's sort of Augustine on hamartiology and the the dogmas of sin and and grace, but also probably in a very anthologized way, right? So you just... You kind of lifted out of and and I would say I never encountered Augustine as a preacher uh right never read the sermon so it was it was a really bad entree um and once I was sort of taken to the confessions, then that was sort of the game changer,
0: yeah, no, it's great I mean well, that was the first augustine that I read, yeah
1: so that uh I'm jealous that
0: uh that yeah I mean great. I just thought it was like the great Basically, how early the on did river. you
1: encounter Augustine in your own journey?
0: I was 18. Yeah.
1: Okay.
0: I was an atheist. I knew at the end of the book, like something sure. wild was going to happen. I didn't quite know that it would be Roman Catholicism. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> that book just totally changed.
1: Yeah. Fantastic.
0: You know, here I am reading about this guy who's in some like remote province of the late Roman empire. And I'm like, he seems so much like me. Yeah. like like how is this possible I mean at that time in my life I was um, just really confused about who I was Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. Augustine's confusion like yeah
1: well and that's what I mean that's a big motivator for my own book was I I do think he's such an interesting mirror um, for our our contemporary angst Um, it's funny you know in some ways the, the, the very Strange reality that a German word angst is just part of the English vocabulary. Right. Tracks back really quite directly to the way Augustine was inherited in in, uh, Germanic intellectual circles. So, yeah, I, I think he's so perennial in that respect. Although I wondered, could people have read him in the 17th century and felt the same? I don't know. I almost feel like there is something about the fracture and, um, yeah, uh, uh, um, discombobulation of our late secular age that makes us more like his experience than reading him in say the 14th or the 16th or the 18th century. I don't know. I don't want to make any grand claims about that, but
0: yeah, I mean, there certainly was a lot of resonances for me. And I think in particular, just there were two things in particular. One his discussions of the divided will. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, okay, well that's me. (laughs) Um, and it was, you know, it's a, it's a gripping philosophical problem. You encounter the problem in Aristotle and in the Nicomachean ethics, um, you encounter it in Plato, but in Augustine, it's so personal. There was the stuff about the divided will. And then there was the stuff about just, I personally sort of think you can summarize the confessions by saying nothing is going to satisfy you <laughs> and, and you need to stop thinking that it will. Yeah. Like or nothing, nothing finite, yes. nothing created yeah, exactly. is going to satisfy you. Um, but the problem is that you have this, you have this drive, and it's never going to be satisfied. So what are you going to do about it? And and where is that? Like if if you realize this about yourself, what does it mean? <laughs> this comes up in the in the Behan novel. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I mean, you kind of have two options. I mean, you can say on the one hand, which one of the characters in the novel basically says well yeah i'm set up this way but it's it's like a weird glitch the best you can do is like have self-awareness about it and then realize that it's just a weird glitch that's a view you can take that view or you can think it's not a bug it's a feature yeah (laughs) and it's clear which way augustine goes there but i'm sort of wondering like If I think about my own education and myself as a teacher, obviously I teach philosophy. The only time I've taught Augustine Mm. is in a great books program. Mm. So I taught human being and citizen at the university of Chicago, where I was in the society of fellows. So that was my job. Human being and citizen is the original great books core at Chicago. yeah. Yeah. And they haven't really changed the curriculum that much. And Augustine's confessions is a uh, winter quarter. So you read the you read the Nicomachean Ethics, the Confessions and the Inferno. Wow,
1: fantastic. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, well, it makes up for a Chicago winter.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I mean, do you think that philosophers should be reading St. Augustine and should be teaching St. Augustine in philosophy classes? Because in my experience, it's not happening.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. So I, I teach Augustine every semester in my intro. To- philosophy class um you you have to configure it differently so if if your philosophy teaching is just governed by metaphysics epistemology questions from 20th century analytic i i do think it's kind of hard to fit in i don't really think that's the way to teach philosophy however um but if you teach philosophy as uh i think the ancients if you teach philosophy as a way of life as Haddo puts it and which is what certainly Aristotle and Plato thought of it as, and you really think of it as this uh, invitation to a journey of self-discovery, then I think the confessions fit perfectly. And you get so many standard philosophical challenges and problems, like questions about the freedom of the will. Uh, You get problem of evil. You get uh, epistemological challenges. I mean, I I just think there's, you can do a lot with it, um, especially if you do creative things and sort of gear it into other uh, um, conversations. I mean, we know, for example, Descartes was so influenced by St. Augustine. So you can build a, a curriculum that, that puts him in conversation with the proverbial canon within philosophy.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a real shame that he's not, I mean, in so many philosophy departments, there's no one who does medieval. I don't know why we would call Augustine um, medieval yeah, anyway. It, does it doesn't really make sense, But but he gets thrown in that because people don't know how to place him. And I think it's because he talks about sin. Yeah. But to my mind, like, obviously there's a, there's sin heard in a theological register, but there's also sin in a philosophical register. And it, and it seems real.
1: Absolutely. If you situate Augustine as late antiquity, I just think it completely transforms who you imagine the conversation he's with. I teach at a, um, Religious liberal arts university. So, what we are doing in an intro to philosophy class is fairly unapologetic uh, in that mm-hmm. regard. But I'm encouraged. Like I heard, I, I think the Confessions are still read at Columbia in their core program. Um, but I uh, and I think Sarah Rudin's new translation, I hope, would give it new life as a as something to attend to. Um, mm-hmm. The City of God, of course, is not a terrible way to come to Augustine either. Um, but there's a lot to slog through there.
0: Well, I wonder what you think, but I think one thing that's clearly a theme in the confessions and for St. Augustine generally is this problem of self-knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So what does Augustine have to say about that? Like, why is it so hard for us to, why is it so hard to know thyself?
1: It seems to me it's, uh, again, a feature of and a backhanded compliment to the depth of the human person, right? Like the the fullness of the human person in a sense, um, almost mimics God's infinity, right? So when he's diving down into memory and he just, he discovers, oh my gosh, this cavern goes deeper than I could ever plumb. That that doesn't seem to me, uh, that seems to me a feature of creaturehood being made in God's image. And so there's something positive about that on the other hand there's clearly um, a, a, a shadow a veil an obfuscation that takes place because my disordered affections rob me of the possibility of even seeing myself right there's something about to, to uh, I, I think Augustine is like you said you know you'll never be satisfied with anything finite. I I also think it's looking for love in all the wrong places. So the the priority of the affections and the way the affections shape our perception, even of ourselves, um, I, I think is a big part of the explanation. And and then of course the 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 harrowing place he gets to at book eight is when he discovers this and realizes, shoot, I can't, and I can't even climb out of this. Like I I could even get to the place where I realize this about myself and I can't fix it myself. that That's a really, really, I think, kind of terrifying place to be in if there's not grace in the world. Uh, right. And that's yeah. so, a game changer.
0: I think so this is part of the reason why People don't want to teach, well, this is part of the reason why in a secular university, in a philosophy department, they don't want to teach St. Augustine is because, you know, at the end of the day, there is a recognition that our inherent sinfulness, right? (laughs) We can't get rid of it ourselves. We're never going to see things the way they really are, including ourselves, without A specific kind of help right namely divine help there is no self-help guide i think you kind of touch on this in your book you know you say we moderns are pelagians like we think that we can just do it ourselves um that's kind of baked into modernity yeah this idea that if i just had the right technique or if i just had the right knowledge or i had the right circumstances um then every, everything would be great right um i would achieve some kind of absolute knowledge or something yeah. really close you know um maybe i wouldn't be perfect but i would be as good as as a human could get and of course this kind of bright eyed optimism is <laughs> not i mean augustine's it's just not. like who are you it's quite an, an antidote to it? that yeah yeah and i think this is sort of one of the themes of your book um, on the road with St. Augustine, you know, that we have to come to a place where we see that we need grace. I wondered if you could just really quickly tell us like how you came to write the book and what you hope that people will sort of take Yeah, from I, it. I mean,
1: I love this line that you're you're tracing though, because it is another reason why I think Augustine is so prescient for us and maybe exactly what we need, even if we don't realize it yet. So on, on the one hand, I think I, I I saw that Augustine provides the resources to be an incredible diagnostician of our own angst and, and our own confusion and frustrations and the exhaustion of naturalism, you might say, right? The, the exhaustion of thinking I can satisfy what turns out to be an infinite longing with all kinds of finite substitutes and he just he's been there he's done that he knows it and and he can kind of give you the psychological feel for the frustration of that from the inside and i guess i i do wonder if we're reaching a point in our so-called secular age in which more and more people are saying this doesn't freaking work do you know (laughs) like well we're trying this is this is not Working or in, or at least they they are thinking that they maybe haven't said that out loud yet. So I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. However, I also think Augustine is a remarkable alternative to our Pelagian modern self-confidence, the self-helpism. At one point in the book, I quote a journalist whose name I can't recall right now, who who um, says, "In some ways, across the twentieth century into the twenty-first, we inherited." all kinds of Augustinian questions, but we never entertained Augustine's answer because it's scandalous. The answer is we are not the answer. And and I think that, that runs counter to the sort of default progressive amelioration project that we think we're all involved in. Uh, It's why I I say, you'll notice I draw a lot on Alcoholics Anonymous as a kind of parallel. Recovery communities are really, really interesting parallel here. So Mm -hmm. I think it's also that piece of it that made me at least want to sort of put Augustine on the radar for some people. I don't think you could really teach the confessions if you don't see the function of divine grace within it it just wouldn't you can't naturalize the confessions and still be teaching that book. So I think that's part of the challenge of him making it into the philosophical curriculum.
0: Although I will say I have a lot of atheist friends who love it. Yeah. I think in part because Augustine just still resonates with them. Yeah. You know like he's messed up yeah. in all the ways that they know that they're messed yeah. up. Um but they just think you know the answer is like medication or psychoanalytic therapy or something else, you know, because they don't, they just don't believe in grace, but they see the need. Right. I mean, they, they, they can kind of recognize like, well, for whatever reason I am fundamentally messed up (laughs) and I actually can't fix myself, but then they go in a different direction for what they think is going to cure them. But just one last question about your book. You talk a lot in the book about exile, which, of course, is a huge theme of the confessions, but also the city of God. And I'm wondering what you think is the kind of philosophical sense of exile, or is there one? Or is that just, is that just a
1: theological? Hmm, that's a great confection. question. You could be in exile in different registers. And, and in many ways, Camus is, Albert Camus is, is the great Augustinian of the 20th century.
0: I absolutely right.
1: Remember. He's he's although he's an Augustinian without grace, so
0: he's an Augustinian atheist. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. And and <laughs> I mean, so there, there's this this sense of cosmic exile, right? The the yeah. the, the self alienation that we experience, but there there's it's also there's these metaphysical ripple effects of it, and there's it's a kind of Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos kind of dynamic. So I I think philosophically um, that has a long pedigree. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you could say that's a pretty, there there are streams of the platonic canon that are grappling with something like that. So that seems to me it has possibility. There, the other sense of exile though for Augustine is just unapologetically eschatological, right? Do you know what I mean? Like what, the kingdom is not here. Uh, we are a, a, a pilgrim city. Uh, there 's this sense of the sojourn and and i i don 't maybe i just haven 't thought about it enough yet, but i haven 't yet figured out how you could just translate those into philosophical terms that don 't require imagining what Augustine imagines, which is this eschatological uh, to come right thy kingdom come dynamic and 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 the fall that threw us into that so i on the other hand, I do think that analysis is one that we should offer as a kind of public gift, if you will, to see if that doesn't help people make sense of uh, where we find ourselves. I mean, to me, that's a powerful way to describe why our politics uh, can be so easily derailed by our idolatries, right? Do you mean, like if, if, if I have a consciousness that in a sense, my political Center of gravity is in a republic to come. Um, then I sort of walk lightly, but not uninvested in this place in which I sojourn. But I'll, I should never overestimate politics, for example, as if it could Pelagianly—not a word—but uh, uh, solve our problem. Uh, and and I wonder if um, the the just the horror show of our political situation right now you know, across the continuum, it stems from the fact that we've lost an eschatological imagination. Now, of course, that's Eric Vogelin. Uh, so we have, right. we have immanentized the eschaton and that's yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. I, I just think I, I can imagine somebody floating that in a way that people who, do not think theologically, could understand and try on. This is what I think Charles Taylor's always doing. He'll, he'll throw something out that's really a Christian account of the world. He says, but let me, I'm going to try to, you know, translate a little bit, try this on and see if it doesn't help you make sense of your experience. And I think you could do something like that with Augustine's eschatology.
0: So I just want to pick up one thread of that. Yeah. And that is... Um... So you mentioned in Camus, there's kind of this cosmic sense of exile. And I'm just wondering, are you specifically thinking of, you know, the experience of the absurd, where it's like on the one hand, you want, <clears throat> you have this natural drive, given that you're human and you're rational, um, to see everything is completely intelligible, but it's not. <laughs> so you you are actually in an, in an, augustinian situation where your natural drive is never going to be satisfied and he sort of calls this the absurd
1: is
0: is that a kind of exile or were you thinking of something else i was just trying to better i mean
1: and Camus uses the language of exile to describe it right so um the stranger is the outsider right the one who's not at home and Mm -hmm. it's not at home with oneself, because you're also, um, you don't feel like the universe is offering you a home. And yet there's this compulsion where you're like, I should feel at home somewhere, right? And that absurd tension between them. And of course, what's remarkable about Camus is then he nonetheless calls us to a kind of sainthood in spite and as if, and I I don't think it's sustainable. Um, There's very interesting parallels, by the way, I think, between that and ta Coates, who, who I have deep, you know, from the book, I have deep, deep uh, respect for. But I think they both end up um, commending something that their intellectual resources don't really have the sources to underwrite. And so there's an interesting tension there.
0: One last follow-up question, and then I swear we're gonna get to the novel. What really is this longing to be at home? Is it something like, I don't know, like a longing to feel like whole in the sense that I'm not recognizing in myself, like something that's just fundamentally messed up or, or is it something else? Like what, what is this longing um, to be? whole? And
1: I think it is, um, it's surely multiple things. I think of it mostly as a longing to be welcomed, so there's this, there's this, now maybe that's not enough, but what, what I'm, there's something about what you're looking for is a kind of security and rest and welcome as if the cosmos was made for you. You belong, it, there's a, there's a belonging dynamic. And now I I, I don't, uh, I'm not a big fan of psychologizing literary criticism, however, I do think Camus' experience as an Algerian in Paris um, living between worlds uh, and never quite being at home in either. Gee, does that sound like anybody? It's, a, it's also Augustine. I, I think mm-hmm. there's something going on there. Um, but, but what he's naming it cosmically is I don't – I wish the world – assured me i wish the cosmos could assure me that i have a place that is safe and secure Um, you're welcome here welcome home this is also the driving narrative propulsion of the confessions so you open the confessions with our hearts are restless until they rest in you and the confessions close with sabbath rest and um I don't know. I also think that has a lot of cultural resonance for us right now, uh, just in terms of, but I don't know, you you might think otherwise. So it is, I guess, a kind of wholeness, but there's something there about being enfolded um, and welcomed that I think speaks to the human hunger.
0: I I like that. I'm going to think more about it um, because I've been trying to I've been trying to think about Augustine on exile specifically and also, mm, and also mm. Camus. So I want to talk about this novel, which I think now is officially a, a finalist for the National Book I Award. I saw that. I saw so that's, that. That's very exciting. Um, so this is Chris Beja's um, The Index of Self-Destructive Acts. I mean, I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed reading this. Yeah. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes, you know, great literature isn't always... <laughs> <laughs> like so, so enjoyable. But I could not put this down. And it just has a lot of um well, first of all, it's a very plot driven novel.
1: Very, very
0: um, and it's you know, sort of fast paced. So it reads really quickly. And it just has these really interesting, quirky characters, all of whom get intertwined with one another in sort of calamitous and comical. Ways, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should just start off like talking about who who the story is about. I mean, as far as I can tell, it's it's really about uh, three people, right? So we have the the Doyle's. So we have Frank, Kit, Margot, and Eddie Doyle, and then we have um, these people who come into the Doyle's orbit: Justin Price and Sam Waxworth. I mean, it's hard to know how exactly to introduce all of this. Right,
1: because it's a big baggy 19th century, you know, story.
0: Yeah, 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 but but it's, it starts off with Sam, uh, Sam Waxworth and a, uh, how do we want to describe Herman Nash? He's a, he's a, um, street, street
1: preacher, street prophet.
0: Yeah. Street prophet. So, so let's talk about Sam first. Sam has just moved to New York City. He's Midwestern. He's like an atheist. He's a skeptic.
1: Formerly Um, religious, raised in the church, but has definitely walked away from that because he's become enlightened.
0: Yeah. So his mom was super religious. Mm -hmm. Um, She had a bad marriage and then I think she found Jesus. And she found Jesus in like a fundamentalist church, it Very, seems.
1: Yeah. Felt a bit Pentecostal to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so, so she's a fundamentalist Christian and there's no real father figure in his life, but was he ever really religious?
1: No, I, can't I, I mean, I think yeah. he attended services, but I think it goes away for him in college. And yeah,
0: I mean, I think as soon as he leaves the house, you know, it it never it was it was always something kind of forced on him from without. So he goes to college, and he um, he becomes famous, actually, sort of. He comes comes college famous. What was it in college? Wasn't it baseball or it was, it was.
1: sports? Yeah, it was, it was sports, and I think baseball. And yeah. then he realizes he's basically developing algorithms, so to speak that have the potential to be marshaled for other kinds of prediction. So prediction is this running thread, right? So Nash, the street prophet is predicting something and then Sam Waxman uh, is also a predictor.
0: Yes, so Herman Nash is predicting the end of the world on November 1st at 10 PM. <laughs> and this is
1: in November nine.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, this is 2009. So it's it's right after the so Barack Obama's been elected. We've were in like the I, I financial scared. collapse
1: is really really uh, an important climate of this book.
0: Right, and we're we're still bogged down in Iraq. So this guy Sam Waxworth, who's young, I mean he's like in his mid mid to late twenties, yeah, has this fancy new job in New York City. And so he's moving from the Midwest to New York City to make a living as a writer. So in that sense, yeah, he is like Nate Silver. So he's got like a um, he's got to produce a lot of content online. Yes.
1: Yeah, and the for, only major... for a site that sounds like basically Buzzfeed, right?
0: Yeah, clicky. very yeah. very clicky. That's right. It's definitely driven. So his performance is like, how many clicks are you getting? How much are you being shared? But then he also has. And his editor seems to have for him some larger aspirations about writing. So his like, his like big goal, the thing that he really wants is a lucrative book contract. And notably, he wants to write a book, a self-help book, right? Um, Basically taking Bayesian decision theoretic principles and applying them to your life. So like, how can you make more rational choices through good Bayesianism?
1: How Bayes can save your life.
0: Yeah, right. And so, of course, this is stupid. (laughs) Part of the whole novel is to show that this is ridiculous. And the central irony of the novel is that, you know, the expert who has the great technique um, for decision making, I think the literal quote is, he fucked it all up so badly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> See, we're back to Augustine's Confessions.
0: Which, of course, I mean, for someone like me, you know, here I am, Aristotelian reading this, like, it's it's wisdom. It's not a technique. You yeah. need virtue. Yeah. Like, this is all crap. <laughs> but of course, it's clear that the, the author of the novel... Um, Also has doubts, (laughs) the (laughs) wisdom of of applying mathematical principles to decisions in your everyday life, especially and most comically, your love life. So another thing about Sam is that he's married to this um, other character, uh, Lucy, who's sort of like a nice Midwestern atheist who really wants to stay at home in Madison. But of course, her husband is going off to New York. And so she's later going to join him. And, and part of what happens in their relationship is, is one of the central action points mm-hmm. in the novel. But one of his, like, like his first big break outside of the stupid bloggy stuff that he does is supposed to be a profile of one of his childhood heroes, Frank Doyle. So why don't you tell us about Frank? Frank is such a lovable character. Right,
1: it's him. hard to resist. Um, Frank seems to me as a combination of Christopher Hitchens, William F. Buckley, and maybe a dash of David Brooks, right? So he's a columnist, um, cantankerous somewhat, uh, quite Mm -hmm. self-important, Upper East Side, married well. uh, Yeah, they're really rich. They're really, everybody in this, just about everybody is really rich in this novel, which is a plot function that i have questions about but um there there's a and and what frank Frank though has written on politics and he writes on cultural affairs but he really loves writing on baseball and has sp- spent an entire career writing on baseball he also has a drinking problem and that drinking problem gets him into trouble um when he's invited into uh, the box, the the commentator's box at the Shea Stadium and and makes racially insensitive remarks and gets canceled. He's, he's canceled. He's
0: canceled. Yeah. He's big time canceled. Yeah.
1: And then eventually fired from the Herald. And uh, I, I have to say, yeah, Frank's character, I, I think Beha does a remarkable job of sketching and living into this character and projecting. I can't remember. I think he's about 70.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and one of the, the threads is just how he, he – the work has ended for him. Do you know what I mean? Like he's – there's no more writing that's going to happen. That's such a harrowing um, – yeah, I did not – that was not comfortable for me, but it was powerful. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Prank is a really, really lovable character. I really fell in love with him. And
1: Sam Sam, of course, was reading – Frank when he was a young man because he also loves baseball so he loved it but then he realized that they have very very different worldviews, and kind of got over Frank and now the the fun is that his first assignment he thinks is going to be to go deconstruct this guy Uh, but it turns out that his allure kind of overpowers him a little bit
0: yeah. So his first big assignment is to write this profile on Frank Doyle. And so they go to a Mets game together in the old Shea Stadium. And this is when they, they first really meet and they realize that although they both love baseball, they do have ex- incredibly different perspectives about how to appreciate baseball and what good or bad baseball looks like. And I mean, basically the contrast, I think, is between, you know, Frank Doyle on the one hand thinks that there's something about baseball that is deeply human in the sense that we rely on narrative and human observers and we can't just reduce it to something material or mechanical.
1: Yeah. It's without- almost sacred that there's a mystique about it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think for Frank, baseball is kind of like a religion. And, and I think Bay has like really explicit about that at certain points where he's bringing in sort of sacramental language. Absolutely. So for Frank, you know, he, for him, going to the ballpark is, is part of ritual and it's, it's good in itself, I don't want to go so far as to say it's a kind of worship, but like worship, it's good in itself. Yeah. You know, you don't have to, and you certainly couldn't reduce it in the way that Waxworth wants to. So Waxworth is a stat head, yeah. right? And so he's just looking at this in terms of statistics and just cause and effect. And so they they have all of these... Um, kind of interesting conversations about, I mean, you might think it's like a debate between someone who's like a real honest-to-God humanist and whose approach to baseball is deeply humanistic and someone who's like a Bayesian naturalist, right? And so here's here's Frank speaking to uh, Sam for the first time. This is page 53 in the novel. Frank says, the numerarchy rules everything now. It had long ago taken over his wife's world, the world of finance, convincing everyone that computer modeling could eliminate risk, an idea that had led to some of the most irrational behavior in human history and taken the whole economy down. It had half ruined the first love of his life, baseball, and now it had set its sight on the second, politics. These people were the enemy, right? And, of course, these people are Sam. He's sitting (laughs) right Right, there. And they have this – Fascinating conversation, this back and forth, and this is where the index of self-destructive acts is introduced.
1: Humanism here is the the resistance of disenchantment, the the argument for mystery. His daughter Margot will also be an apologist for that. Um, but what's interesting is humanism is is kind of the portal to mystery. Like, humanism is pretty much the equivalent of transcendence and enchantment in this, this novel. And Frank just doesn't want to live in a world, he's not, he's not particularly religious. His wife, Kit, uh, exhibits some more sort of institutional religiosity. But you can see how Frank is still hanging on to this sense of a mystery to life, the mystique of, of not being explained.
0: Um right. And that's why he's so he's so upset about reducing baseball to stats because it's like this disenchanting, demystifying. It takes all of the um I mean what for, for Frank, it would take all of the pleasure out of it, yeah. all of the joy yeah. out of it. Now, of course, Frank has two kids. So you mentioned his wife, Kit. She's a she's an eye-banker.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh yeah, very successful, took over her took over her father's firm. So Margot's is is Frank in so many ways. She's like his spitting image. And then um Eddie, the other um, and I can't remember, is Eddie younger than Margot? I can't remember their age. Yeah, I can't him. remember either. Um, but Eddie is is like his mom. And and part of that is that in Eddie there are these religious impulses that seem absent from, from Margot. Um, and one respect in which Margot and Um, her father, Frank, are so much alike, is in their love of literature and poetry in particular. So Margot, you know, wants to be a poet. She's studying poetry in grad school, I think, at Columbia. So there's this interesting conversation between Frank and Sam. And then um, he meets Frank's daughter, Margot. And <laughs> they, they end up becoming romantically entangled, but it's sort of very comical. They have these series of conversations in which she, like her father, is is pushing back against this reductive picture of things. Um, and there's this really hilarious exchange where Sam, I don't know if he's trying to impress her or what, but he mentions Socrates. And he's like, oh yeah, Socrates thought that writing would ruin our memories. <laughs> And Margo's like, yeah, you know, I've read the Phaedrus, <laughs> and he's like, oh, I haven't. I just got that from some tech blog. <laughs> and you just like Classic. have this—you yeah. just have this sense of how I don't know how, how uneducated yeah. he is in some yeah. really deep sense.
1: Or that his education is just the semblance of bits of information, right? So, oh yeah, I got this line from Socrates. Not that you would journey uh, um, ascend with the the phaedrus in that way
0: yeah 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 no he um he's not he's not reaching the divine ecstasy that's that's for certain one thing i don't get is why Margot is attracted to him like i don't Mm. i don't understand why anyone would like sam maybe i'm a little too hard on sam but he seems like a real loser to me
1: because <laughs> <laughs> he wants to paint him as having this allure like he's like the bright young thing who just showed up in new york he sort of proved himself in the recent election prediction and but yeah i guess um
0: but he's so shallow
1: oh yeah very much is he handsome i can't remember that he's even particularly handsome either i don't know i don't okay, get no. the engine of the romance there
0: Yeah. So she, but she's like, she's drawn to him and it's unclear whether or not she's just bored or it's just part of a pattern with her. It seems like all of her romantic endeavors um, go very poorly, but, but she becomes entangled with him and that's very complicated because Sam's married (laughs) and his wife um, eventually comes to join him. But Sam also Uh, starts to have kind of a divided will, right? Mm -hmm. Like he, he's not able any, because he's so, he finds himself really drawn to Margot, and he's very uneasy about this. He's trying to apply his own theories to the situation and he can't do it. Right. Because he's, he, he finds himself with a divided will. He's like, I want two completely incompatible things. I want to be a loyal husband. Because I recognize that my that my marriage is everything that I think a marriage mm. should be, you know, like it's stable and supportive and it's good. He's like, "But I also want to be this woman's lover. What am I going to do
1: And the algorithm doesn't help him here
0: right, right, and there's this I mean there's this one central scene in the novel where where everyone kind of comes together um, in the Hamptons and but there are a couple of players that we haven't introduced yet. So so we haven't really talked about Eddie. Eddie goes off to fight in Iraq. Um yeah. I think he has maybe several tours which is or least-
1: which is crazy, right? Like he's an upper east side rich kid who after 9/11 just feels like he has to give himself away to something. That's this devotional temperament he has that you said that he probably got from his mother. And so what does he think of? He signs up for the army.
0: Yeah, so he wants to do something sacrificial. Uh, but he goes over to Iraq and now he's back and he's messed up. Yeah. Right. He's really anxious. He goes on these long runs just to exhaust himself so he yeah. can like be asleep, so basically like not dealing with the world. He's having a hard time like re entering anything like normal life. He's having a hard time. Um, even engaging with his best friend. So his best friend is this guy, Justin Price, who is a, he's a, he's a black eye banker who got into the industry through his contacts with the Doyle family. So he actually grew up.
1: Well, and he was a scholarship kid to their, their prep school.
0: Yeah, their fancy prep school. So he was, I think, in Crown Heights.
1: And his mom is also very religious.
0: His mother is very religious and he he gets sent off to private school in a peculiar way. Mm-hmm. So he's he's gay mm-hmm. and he gets caught with another boy at his um public school and they decide okay the, they have to be separated and you know we're going to put Justin like as basically as far away from this as he can be. Um, but of course, Justin's still gay. <laughs> it turns out right, that doesn't like right, really right. change if you move locations. But so now he falls in love with with Eddie, and also becomes. A Who is basic,
1: not
0: gay? Right, who's not gay? <laughs> so it is kind of a it's a complicated friendship, but it yeah. is they are best friends. He basically is adopted in a sense, yes. not. Yeah. Um. You know, not actually, but in, in some deep sense, he's adopted by the Doyle family and becomes one of them. And he decides, like, I want to be like them, where that means I want to be rich, right? Um, so for a while, he's working for Kit. But then he goes on to work for this other guy, Ison, because that's, like, where the real money is. But also, it turns out, getting that kind of money involves yeah. some shady, illegal he's- stuff.
1: He's Bobby Axelrod from Billions.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So, so, so there's Justin and then.
1: Nash, the the street preacher sort of weaves in here episodically.
0: But yeah, so they, they have this dinner in the Hamptons and a bunch of things happen that get them all entangled with one another. So they go to this dinner party, and this is sort of yeah. like the occasion where all their lives mm. become entangled mm. in complicated ways. And at the party, you have Lucy and Sam, and you have all the Doyles, and you have Justin. It's sort of astonishing how the whole thing unfolds. But after this point, everything begins to unravel for mm. everyone. Mm. You know, after this point, just, let's just say generally things go poorly. <laughs> um, yes. yes. And a lot of people stand in need of, of of some kind of redemption at some point in the novel, um, or they're looking for redemption. I think that for Addy, it's the most explicitly religious. He's he's specifically looking for forgiveness for, for some of the things that, that he does and what looks like, yeah, a lot of self-destructive acts. Yeah,
1: until Nash comes on his radar and then he thinks this might be another um it reminded me a lot of discussions this is by the way this was the thread that i half wished phil clay had written uh because there's the the veterans experience of returned and mm-hmm. um the the military actually uh, officially recognizes now what they call moral injury mm-hmm. and they would also say that moral injury cannot be repaired by us saying it's okay you actually need to go through rights of reconciliation, and, and and that's sort of what Eddie finds in the strangest of places in Washington Square Park.
0: I mean, one thing that we can say without really revealing what happens is, so the, the book begins with a prediction, you know, that the world's going to end on November 1st at 10 p.m., and then the book ends on November 1st at 10, 10 p.m., basically. And I think we can say, you know, that at the end, a lot of things – come to an end.
1: Yeah. You yeah, know, a lot it, of people's worlds end. Yeah. As they know it, the end of right. the world as they know it.
0: But that's yeah. why there's this question, like, is Herman Nash like a prophet or is he a con man? What actually was Herman Nash up to? And as you mentioned a couple times, you know, one of the things being explored in the novel is this contrast between prophecy, which is, knowledge of divine things. It's knowledge of the future, but it's knowledge of the future in, in a way that, I don't know, manifests divine knowledge somehow. Mm. We're not talking about the human sort of knowledge that is uh, Sam Waxworth. Yeah, you know, prediction. Yeah. Right. yeah, so two very different kinds of prediction. And you kind of get the sense that it looks like the one form of prediction <laughs> really didn't work (laughs) you know and for the other one there is so you know like one of the questions that i have as a as a reader is you know it is does beha have some kind of message here or is he just sort of raising a bunch of questions
1: for us Uh, what what do you what and what is your take on that? my my impression is um the, the author of the novel is keeping his cards really close to his vest in, in the sense that there's an underdetermination of the data in ter- of how you want to read the ambiguity, right? So there's, I don't know if, if you noticed, there's this really interesting book ending where early on in the novel, um, he introduces this idea, maybe it's Frank actually that talks about it, where he he wants this recording angel the recording
0: angel right? yeah
1: taking it all down in a book somewhere he's yeah he's talking about baseball and and then why people like bring their scorebooks and like they're they're recording every act and every pitch and and it's cuz you don't want to lose anything right you want you want to sort of preserve and then the last page of the book uh, there's this question of oh is this the recording angel which is also this great pretension of the novelist because it turns out the novelist is the recording angel, right? I mean, they're the one who just gave us this story. It's like when Taylor Swift says, you know, Oh, our song is God's song. Oh, by the way, it turns out I wrote this song. Uh, there's this really interesting twist to it. And, and yet the it ends in mid sentence and, and it turns out maybe the recording is not eternal, right? <laughs> if it was recording angel, they should be able to keep recording. And it ends mid-sentence. And so I, I don't I don't think um I love it that Beha is deflating. It's a very deflationary take mm-hmm. on our prognosticating confidence as naturalists. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't give you the coddled comfort of divine prophecy either. Do you know like I, I guess I appreciate that he leaves us in the ambiguity of that.
0: Yeah, I think he I think he leaves the tension unresolved. I think it is pretty clear that he thinks that Sam Waxworth is comically wrong. Yeah. about yes. How yes. to live a human life yes. and how to see the world and especially how to see other people. And I think what's most comical about him is that he is incapable of making a decision with someone. He makes decisions for people and then deforms and then informs them. And they're usually like life decisions. <laughs> I mean, this is basically how you would sum up his relationships with women. He figures it all out without any input from you. And <laughs> yeah. then he informs you.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just I can't stand this guy.
0: But you know, so I so I think he's obviously exposing him. You know, as, I mean, really a a comical figure. I mean, I find him funny. He's absurd. Yeah. But I think he leaves us with this tension. He's not going to take a side. He's not going to come out. I mean, sometimes he's, he's often compared to Graham Greene. And and I I think, yeah, so, and, and I could see that in the sense that he's grappling with the question of man as a, as a religious animal. And, and he's, he's grappling with all these questions, but I think Graham Greene in many of his novels is, is willing to take sides. You know, like if you think of like the power and the glory, I wouldn't say it has a comforting ending, but it has a
1: Catholic, ending. (laughs) you know, where you're like American too.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Sure.
0: And you know, with Beha, it's not, you're not going to get that.
1: There is, I mean, I, I think it's, it is interesting that it ends so intimately with Frank right? You are, yeah. you are literally in Frank's head and heart. And it, it's the last few pages were, I found so moving. Um, and yeah. if, there's a, if there's a sympathetic leaning, the fact that Frank's desires and longings and hopes get the last word is telling. But then, yeah, that, that last line um, sort of unsettles it all. I think it's a very powerful device in a sense. Um, I also think that he's, in terms of um, honoring what Beja is doing, I think he's he's doing something that's close to your own work and things that you've talked about already today, which is the will, the dynamic of the will, freedom, agency. Do you know what I mean like that? People yeah. are making choices. Is itself a manifestation of our mystery, our fullness, our resistance to being reduced. <laughs> On the other hand, you have this guy making terrible, terrible decisions, and so that that divided will that we talked about with respect to Augustine again, and and you realize information's not going to get you out of this. It's not how smart you are. There's not an intellectual puzzle. This isn't about epistemology. This is ultimately about um, will and maybe grace i don't know that there's anything quite like grace operative here there's illumination revelation um but maybe maybe that's the difference there's there's not quite the means of grace that's at work i don't know i i'm not asking him to do that i'm just i'm uh, thinking through the dynamics of how you could how you could save a divided will
0: I think the question of, you know, is grace operating in this novel? I think it's an open question. I don't think it's obviously decided either way. I can see ways of interpreting this where it is at work, but I also, I mean, I've, I've, I don't have yeah. a settled view yeah. about this, yeah. um, but I do agree with you that it's absolutely a book about freedom and about opposing views of freedom, but also a question even you know, because you talk about this idea of the recording angel, which shows up in the beginning and and also at the end. And I think, you know, that opens up the idea that there is this kind of omniscient perspective outside of things. And that to me always suggests providence. Yeah. And so of course there was always this question about, well, look, if there was always a plan in advance, so, so I think there are all of these yeah, yeah. questions and he does leave it. He, he just leaves it, you know, as just a, a, a series of tensions.
1: And I admire him for that because I, I wasn't looking for the resolution or it, it wouldn't have been as powerful if he resolved it all. And I should say too, I, I'm not saying it would be a better novel if Grace was explicit. I think the ambiguity is part of the engine here.
0: Yeah, so I agree that the ambiguity makes it more of a novel for our time and that this is a plus. Unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties, my conversation with Jamie was cut short, but I want to thank him for coming on the podcast and for being such a great partner in conversation. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by William Dethridge. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or on the App AppLayseum. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at EudaimoniaPod, and we're also over on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, then please be sure to let your friends know to check us out and to leave us a positive review on iTunes. For our next episode, I'll be joined by Professor of English Literature, Karen Swallow-Prior, to discuss Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Until then, be well and keep reading.